Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. Social media, you know, all the good things it could do is say, you know, great, that's forethought, but we didn't put forethought into what if it gets out of control? How do you, how do you, you know, get this monster of misinformation back in the box? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are watching and or listening to my podcast, In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And today, my guest is Teresa Spangler, who is an author of a book called All That I Am, Now That I Know, Exploring Women and Entrepreneurship. And in addition to which, she is someone who has both studied and worked in artificial intelligence and decision-making. I met uh, Teresa through the WBC, which is the Women's Business Collaborative. I was introduced to that by my friend, Jose Zilstra, who runs a wonderful outfit called Gender Fair that assesses American corporations, well, global corporations based on how they treat women, and you can download it on your phone and make uh, consumer decisions accordingly. And her friend, Edie Fraser, who runs WBC, uh, I am on the advisory board now. I think 10% of the membership of the many hundreds of women involved are men, and I'm one of them. And so um, thanks to Edie, thanks to Jose for introducing us. So Teresa, let me just start with... Uh, a little bit of personal stuff about you. I, I just want to mention that the last uh, podcast we did, which will be out soon, was with Gabriella Schuster, who is a vice president of Microsoft and has been in tech for 30 years. So we've done two back-to-back -back women in a field that seems to me uh, populated by far too many men and far too few women. Um, as someone who's working with AI, I'm going to get into that with you. But before we get to the book and who you are professionally, you mentioned um, kind of joking about the background that, you know, maybe your husband will walk through or whatever. And I said, dogs, children, husbands are welcome. <laughs> um, and so we don't care. This is a conversation between human beings. Awesome. Uh, and we all have lives. Um, so let me start with your life. I come from a evangelical fundamentalist background that taught me that women should obey men. I left that. I'm totally on the other side of these issues now, some 30, 40 years later, um, as I'm pushing into my 70s. Um, Jeannie and I have been married 52 years. I got her pregnant when we were 17 and 18, and we stuck together. We have three kids and five grandchildren. And I always like to begin by just kind of being honest about my own life to let my guests know that 
you know, I'm not, I'm old enough now, so I don't care if anybody thinks I'm cool or not. And I can just say, you know, who I really am and the journey I was on. So let me start with you as a human being and just talk about your background a little bit. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up, who your parents were, what kind of people they were, what sort of childhood you had, and a little bit about your personal journey, whether it's business or spiritual or romantic, from there to where you're sitting this afternoon. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. That's, all right. Well, let's see. I grew up in a very small town, Concord, North Carolina. Hmm. I have five brothers. Um, I was generally hanging from a door hinge by my belt loop, or I was the football. Uh, I tossed around quite a bit. So I grew up with a lot of strength. Um, you know, I grew up with parents that were first generation, um, both sides from Lebanon. They immigrated to this country. So my parents were first generation born in this country, but I grew up with my, with my grandmother and my grandparents being very influential in my life for the strength that they had to, you know, when I look at what's going on today, they had to come out of war-torn countries and find peace somewhere and, and freedom So, um, and fight for their own families. So I grew up with that as a basis. Um, I can get into that a little bit more later, but uh, my dad had a small business in Concord that he was sort of the do-all real estate. He had a little store that my grandparents started when they came over his, his parents and he worked the store. And when my grandfather died, he, you know, took it over and kind of ran it. It was sort of this, you know, all kind, all types of um, things inside the store, including cooking, making sandwiches, serving, you know, the, the community it was always uh, part of our life, right? We all went to the store, we helped him, he did real estate, he did taxes, and he had the store and he put people to work, um, built homes and, you know, just had a passion for the community. It really was the community. Um, we grew up, you know, very uh, strong Catholic family, uh, you know, lots of cousins and always got together. But I had a I guess a very strong foundation. I think it was a spiritual foundation if, you know, in the beginning, um, but very strong grounding. My dad was, my dad and my mom were very much about people and the community and supporting the community. And, and even though they're both gone, people come up to me all the time and with the most incredible memories of where my parents helped them. So that drive to help is in in innate in me, um, you know, the job to want to give back and, and do things is I think it's just part of who I am and part of who my family was. Um, I still have my five brothers, they have big families and we all stay kind of close together, but we lost our parents some years ago. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of I guess the the did basis. You, did in that background um two questions <clears throat> that come out of a sort of a fraught immigrant background hmm. from a war-torn country. Um First of all, your your parents went to the south, which might not have been the easiest place to go if you're from Lebanon mm. and or a Roman Catholic in a very Protestant, Southern Baptist oriented kind of part of the country. Did you ever run into any of that in the sense of where are you all from uh, and yeah. why do you do all these weird things and all, all that time. kind of baggage? Yeah, you know, I, um, my parents were pretty incredible in the way that they raised us to I don't even know how they did it, but they were so grounded in 
letting things roll off your shoulders and just, you know, stay focused on who we are and what we do. But my mom was very private. She didn't want us talking about us, where we came from. Don't talk about your family because you don't know how people are thinking. And, you know, my dad was more like, don't worry about it. You are who you are and you're a good, you know, we do what we do and we do good things. And I think the small community was helpful because I, there were a group of Lebanese people that settled in New Bern, North Carolina. It was a big you know, community. Mm-hmm. And then my other relatives were in Detroit, which was also a very large community of Lebanese people. Um, Lebanon was part of our discussion every day. I mean, it was just my grandmother was from there. So she was, you know, half speaking Arabic and half speaking English would tell us stories all the time. So um I think we were very cognizant of the the fractions and we were very, I, I was, you know, in the seventies, even in, um, in school as older, watching my dad and my aunts work to be able to communicate with relatives during the, you know, times that were really war and bombing. And, mm. you know, we had family members there and my aunt ran a college and was working very hard to get kids out of the co- into college over here. And, you know, try to help bring, you know, people over. So I think it, it was, I, I never felt um, it was probably there. I just never let it affect me necessarily. Hmm. You know, other than the dark hair and the big nose, I always got jokes about the dark. Well, hair in terms nose. of the Lebanese community, did you find people from other backgrounds in Lebanon who in Lebanon weren't getting on so well in the civil war, or was it mostly from the Roman Catholic community that, you know that, that, that you guys that your greater Lebanese community in that area came from I, I for the most part we were um from what I knew the Catholic community we were my you know again my mom's you know very mm-hmm. cautious about sharing your religion because it wasn't it, not sure. everybody believed the way we did in this country mm-hmm. um you know, but even if we were with Muslims or other religions, you know, it was not a, it was not a problem from my standpoint. I didn't, I never yeah. felt like I was being um, targeted or, you know, something, you know, we just not an agreement it was an open discussion. Mm-hmm. I felt more sometimes targeted as a Catholic by maybe the Baptist community or sure. other religions than I did, you know, others. So, yeah. Um, Anyway, so that, yes, that, that it's, it's, I think we were in a generation where we were coming out of being able to be a little more of ourselves, but it, we're at the line of it. So you know, my parents sure. were, you know, cautious. And- growing up, were you kind of aware of the problems in Lebanon in terms of the civil war? I mean, how much anguish did what was going on in the quote unquote old country uh, bleed into your family experience and with your parents, yeah. your grandmother, and so forth. I mean, you must have felt that because you are growing up. I mean, I, I I'm a, uh, you know, I'm assuming that you were sort of a child during some of the, the trouble yeah. that was happening, and that must have in some way affect, in, affected how you see the world even up to today. I it, it does. I mean, I you know, I still was young, but you know, in the seventies. Before I, I was in, I think, high school, junior high and high school, so mostly mm-hmm. like junior high. And my aunt, when she was bringing kids over, would, my dad would bring them into our house. And mm-hmm. on Sundays was the only time that was a ceasefire where they could try to call and have communication with family members. Yes. That just certainly it stays with you. I, I, and it's sad. 
I mean, you yeah. certainly, you, you can't help but when you look at today and look at all that we've learned and then look at, uh, look back and say, why is it that we're still here? And, uh, yeah. And the thing is, too, it gives you a perspective growing up, I imagine, that lets you know pretty early that life is not going to be perfect and is going to be a bit of a struggle. Yeah. And, and the funny thing about that is my dad always said, you know, you can do anything. Williams can do anything. Mm-hmm. Our, his um, Lebanese name was Milchelm and he had to, I guess his father changed it when he came over because he couldn't understand what he was saying. So they, they had to pick a name. But it was always a Williams can do anything. And they're like, the older you get, you realize, well, that's not necessarily true, Dad. Yes. <laughs> it works in Disney movies where the princess is singing, you know, yeah. be anything, be anybody. But yeah. in yeah. real life, maybe not. Uh, yeah. Hey, so let me turn the page a little bit here before I get to your book. Um, yeah. Uh, which, by the way, when when did all that I am now that I know exploring women entrepreneurship, when was it published? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Uh, in 2018. Yeah, I could look it up, but I just, yeah. I just didn't have that. What, what, what are you doing? Okay, so <laughs> what is your day job and how does it fit in with artificial intelligence and decision making? How would you describe what you do? That's where I want to start. So I have a company called Plaza Bridge Group, which I founded and my husband's now part of and has been for many years. But it's um, innovation consultancy and development. So we go into companies and help them with growth strategies. Not, you know, it may be that, um, well, it's helping them with growth and revenue growth, right? Mm -hmm. And most of the time that's leveraging, you know, what is your future going to look like? What products do you need to have to be able to stay alive and sustainable in the future, and how do we help you get there? And what processes and, and you know, culture do you have to even innovate new yeah. products and, and ideas? Technology, because I grew up in technology for the most part, more on the sales and marketing side, but, um, you know, later on being able to work with developers and understanding the development side and understanding the technologies, you know, sort of nuances hmm. um, and the importance of that in organizations. It really has become this, how do we help? companies understand technology and its place in their new product strategies or their innovation and what it's going to do to their futures and in the future of the company. So that is just more been a personal passion of mine. I love, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that I'm staying um, sort of as far ahead of the curve as I can on what's going on in technology and how it might impact us in the future and you know, future thinking. I'm a very big component of future thinking and planning but that's what our day job is. That's what my my work in, is. In view of that, do you uh, do you have more contact than most people might with other women 
given mm -hmm. that I met you through the WBC, who, like uh, Gabriella uh, Schuster, who I interviewed from uh, the other day from Microsoft, there, there are some women in the tech end of things. Uh, often, uh, if they're in a bigger company, they're not specifically in the, in the most tech science-oriented part. But nevertheless, there's, there's very few women out there. Has your interests introduced you to women in the field on the science side of, of tech innovation besides, say, the marketing side? Well, I, you know, again, I, I landed in tech because I loved the I love the future. I love what was happening in more in product. It wasn't always technology, but technologies mm. was it. That's the flavor, right? Um, that drive led me to working with startups and and doing some very cool things. And yeah, I was you know one of few women with an Indian partner, co-founder, to get funded. So you know the the interesting thing is going after some of these roles that. In the mentoring world of, if, if, for example, we have a very strong friend who is my investor 30 years ago, the one person, and I, I joke with him about it, like he would introduce men founders to men. But when I came in, he wanted me to meet the one woman founder. It was only mm. one that had ever mm. been invested in. And I was the second one. So yeah. it's like, well, why wouldn't you? Eventually we did. We had these discussions. It's like, well, I want to meet the other guys too. It's like, you know, I'm not just a woman. So let's look at the founders and and, yeah. put that. and I sought it out. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily easy. And then you hit the top ranks of a company because I was an executive um, at a company that went IPO. It was most, it was all men in the beginning. And, you know, slowly that, and I will say the CEO was very, cognizant of bringing women on because he wanted a diversified organization mm. so i've been fortunate maybe in that regard and i always sought it out ibm was always much more diversified you know working with some of the technology companies maybe not at the most senior ranks but you could see the evolution and i think the mindsets of a lot of my peers as we got together in technology was really just you know, let's not let anything stop us. Let's band together. And I, yeah, that's the beauty of the organizations today. Do you, do you go into some of that in, in the book in terms mm -hmm. of woman entrepreneurship? Does it have a, uh, you know, would you describe that as a book with a, a sort of a more tech savvy angle because of your own interests or is it just generally across the board? And the second thing, um, you know, I would ask on that is in terms of your own experiences, uh, in the, in the world of business per se, tech in particular, have you run into some of the roadblocks of the kind of what you read about um, on, on the on the whole bro culture thing and that sort of masculine hubris that uh, is not not per se misogynistic all the time, but basically looks at the world through a kind of an acquisitive lens. Uh, rather than one of cooperation in a way that I think excludes good leadership, period, mm -hmm. which in my book excludes women, because I think women are, are wonderful leaders. And, and, and real leading is, in a way, uh, the power of giving away power, to quote my friend Matthew Barzan, who was Obama's um, ambassador to the UK, who's written this book called The Power of Giving Away Power. It's so interesting because it's by a man who worked with Obama to develop the small donor method that made Obama president mm. and really mirrors what I think is a more feminine style of leadership. I hate to use those words, but in the sense that it's not this chest thumping, it's all about me stuff. 
And of course, real leadership is cooperation and delegation. And I think women know how to do that very well. But anyway, um, in your book, uh, mm-hmm. all that I know now that I know, all that now I that am I now that I know, exploring women entrepreneur, let's yeah. go back to that and just talk about how you wrote that, why you wrote it, and does it shed some light on this whole question of women entrepreneurship in tech or science-oriented fields? Well, yes, in some ways, but I wanted it to be much more broad and, and impact, you know, especially young professional women. I have a daughter who's in her early 30s and, you know, looking at the challenges they have, again, today, which in yeah. some cases I think is almost worse than what I had growing up into the world of startup and um, Stop there for a minute and tell me how you think it's almost worse. That's such an interesting statement. I, think we went and I don't want to breeze by that. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, money does funny things to people. I think the more success, and especially in the Silicon Valley, which she was in California, you know, the, the money's that equate of money and power, which has been predominantly a male thing. Yeah, um, I think it's created an even stronger bro culture, which in some ways, I don't mean this, it was almost like a permission to use people in certain ways and women being, being the thing that they wanted to use. They had money and power. Now women, some women allow it to happen. You know, some women are savvy enough also to figure out how to use that to get where they want to go. And I don't Mm. disparage any of it. I'm just saying there's these different aspects of things that are happening. It was hard for me. Sure. I mean, um, I think, again, it's all about mindset and it's like you have to barrel through it. And did it keep me from doing things that I really thought I wanted to do? I, I think in some regards, I pulled back and I talk about that in my book. You know, it's mm-hmm. like when I was asked who's going to be the CEO of this particular startup and I'm, you know, I'm the one getting the money and I'm the one sitting here doing all the work. And I knew what he was really asking, but I didn't answer the question. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know when I really, he wanted me to say, I'm going to take it. It's, you know, what do, what are we doing as women to hold ourselves back that maybe we don't even recognize when we could step up. But this brings up a question I'd like to ask you just uh, one-on-one here, uh, irrespective of what you say in your book. And that is that, you know, it seems to me sometimes women are so right about things, but are tempted to play by the rules that they are handed as the price of admission, instead of saying, hey, there's a better way to do this whole thing. And that comes in the area of work-family balance. It comes in the area of parental leave. It comes in the area of pay equity, but it also comes just in accepting this culture, say the bro culture to give it that name. Um, you know, when you think of, of this sort of idea, move fast and break things and disruption being glorified for its own sake, you know, a, a woman leader, for instance, the prime minister of New Zealand would say, well, but what happens to everybody else? Mm-hmm. And where is the virtue of upsetting the entire social apple cart so that you can chest thump and say, hey, we have this bright new idea. How about we bring everybody along with us to the next step? Um, and that's real leadership, whereas this kind of self-centered business model, kind of Ayn Randian, you know, ideal of the powerful male move fast, break things to hell with everybody else. It seems that, you know, women are not going to get very far in that world, not because only they're women, but they're actually smarter than that. But don't want they, to. they have they to pretend to. they're not to succeed. I agree. I, you know, I don't, I didn't want that. I'm, I'm, you know, I focus on innovation for good and yeah. 
Yeah. The, the investment community, it's all tied together. The investment community must have returns and they must have returns in a certain time frame. Mm-hmm. And they're going to go to the entrepreneurs that have shown over and over again that they can do that. Or they're going to choose those entrepreneurs that are founders that seemingly they think they can get enough cranks out of to make their money back at some point in time. So there's always the look of a return. And it certainly does force faster, get things out there, disrupt, disrupt. And I love disruptive technology, but what we don't do and what I think sometimes at the cost of men or women, if it's a cost, the cost is we're not thinking about the, or anticipating what's the downside of putting AI into a robot that's going to take over this role and start to do my facial recognition and sense every emotion in my body. What's the downside? Why are we not planning for that? And we just, we just haven't done that. Otherwise, yeah. we wouldn't be having cybersecurity issues that we have today. We'd be thinking about the hacking and the things ahead of time and trying to put those guards in. I think women do think more about it, hmm. but we've had the affordability to be able to think more about it when we're not being pushed for a number or a return. Yeah. Yeah, in in you know, in the last couple of WBC meetings that I've been watching online um, about w- women in business and so forth and so on, it seems to me that some of the numbers are actually moving in the wrong direction. When you look at the statistical studies that are being done by some of the women, in terms of the number of women not only in tech but pay equity, and also the number of women who have dropped out altogether in the aftermath of COVID. Yeah. But uh, then there's sort of nuanced debates as well of a lot of men and women who would rather work from home more, but then they suffer in their job because they're not taken quite as seriously because they're not showing up in the office all the time. It seems right now that, you know, someone who's written a book on women entrepreneurship, my guess is, is that your radar is pretty intensely focused on where we are in terms of navigating the return to work, if you want to put it that way, or, or the great resignation, if you flip it yeah. post, post-COVID. Because I think all the cards are on the table now in a way that in my lifetime, I'm 70, I've never been in a period, I've never lived in a period of history where more seems to be up in the air mm. and where a lot of, you know, you do not know how so many different stories are going to end now. And I think women's entrepreneurship is one of them amongst others, because of all this refiguring. I mean, how, how are you seeing things right now yourself, just in the sort of broad sweep of, of life in general, but women entrepreneurship in particular? Uh, you know, your book came out a couple of years ago. Okay, a lot's changed since then. Yep. Um, well, I, I mean, it's a big question. There are a number of things, right? I think there are, there's more savvy around women and what they need to do to to access money. Mm-hmm. I think there was a, a dearth of, you know, every entrepreneur, I don't know how much you've been in it, but, you know, I spent um, years coaching and, and advising entrepreneurs as part of organizations, 500 entrepreneurs, men and women. And, you know, having the savvy to know what you need in order to be able to get a VC or an investor to say yes. Mm. It's just not there. The education has changed a lot and there's much more to help women and men understand what you need to be credible to an investor. And I think that's going to help the money buckets, you know, they always are looking for the experience are always looking for the confidence. And I talk a lot of women to women about being 
competent and confidence in front and trying to understand what they're saying between the lines. So they don't get caught into, you know, what you think they're saying, because it's too easy. And I think that more of that needs to be done for women. Men barrel through it. I mean, I see. Let me go back to a point I made earlier, because I want you to talk about this more, because I know you bring a lot to the table on this issue. This idea that, you know, looking for permission to be taken seriously in that arena, sometimes the arena itself and its values have to be challenged rather than saying, well, let me explain the rules of this game to you. It's a stupid game. Men aren't happy either. Uh, I'll just give you one example from my daughter, who's a CEO of a company in New York, a, a green energy investment company. And she was saying that one of the things that changed after COVID was that, you know, she would not try to hide the fact that her biggest interest in life was her kids, even yeah. though she's very successful. Sure. And why? Because she was doing Zoom calls like the one we're on right now, where a toddler, you know, you were talking about your husband running through, where a toddler runs through the, a, a president of a bank that she's talking with um, in a meeting and he thinks I got to be quiet because I just put my, my, my two-year-old down for a nap. Well, all of a sudden now we have permission to be people uh, and don't have to pretend that we're hundred percent focused, serious woman. You know, I'm as I'm right in there with the guys, the guys were kind of putting on a show too. So somebody's got to finally say, Hey, this emperor has no clothes. And, well, and it's just ridiculous. We have to pretend we don't have lives we care about as caregivers, as whole people. I mean, how do you, you relate to that? that? Do you remember 9-11? Yeah. We became, we became human again. Yeah. 2008, we became human again. We're right now, we are kind of in that. We, we're still human. All the money is pouring into startups and all kinds of things. Yeah. My hope is we don't lose that. How do we keep this humanistic? Because as we tend to forget very easily and go mm. back into this unnatural norm. So I think the, the, the pieces of the puzzle that are seemingly to, for me coming together that I can see are more women's organizations, more advocacy for, uh, you know, uh, uh, every, you know, inclusive culture. Mm. Um, you know, I think those things are really important. And then, you know, more money sources and more education to help uh, from from early stages, the colleges are trying to be more focused on this. I mean, we teach, um, I teach an innovation and product management course for a university here locally and just started that. But it's to bring real world. And we talk about these issues. I think mm-hmm. you have to bring it to the younger generation so it grows up. But what I, do we, you see the younger generation doing and reacting to you bringing these up? I'm really, that's not a rhetorical question. I'd really like to know, what are you discovering in these classes you're teaching and or with younger women or men about their attitude towards trying to have a whole life, you know, combine romantic and family interests and other interests with this hard driving. I'm all about business. I'll show up on the weekend stuff. Yes. Interesting. Cause, and I'll parallel it with, and I don't remember the year, but I spoke to a, uh, a number of women MBA students at Duke university some years ago. Mm. And now I was, I think I was maybe even still at Red Hat at the time working. And the question was, how do you do this with a daughter? How do you do what you do and have a child? And the concern was, was that, Hmm. and, you know, and, and I did it and we share some, some strategies there, you know, today it's almost a little more in the Z, um, you know, the generation that is in college now and be graduating because they're all seniors. They're 
I don't hear family concerns. I don't hear work. They're, they're going to figure out how to have it. They, they want it. They want a healthy community. They want a green community. They're focused on privacy is a very big concern. They want uh, to be able to kind of have their time and they feel like, you know, the work environments today are opening up for remote work and opportunities and they could do their own thing for entrepreneurship. And I see the equal, you know, sort of thinking there, men and women. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, when I hear what they're most concerned about, it's interesting that privacy comes up as number one, but then when I ask them, are you on TikTok? And then all the hands go up and sure. it's like, well, it's the education of what does this mean when you're saying these things? Yeah. Um, but I don't know if I answered your question directly. Well, but yeah, you did. You didn't. And you, you bring up an interesting segue to something I wanted to ask anyway. And that is if you're talking about AI, artificial intelligence, and the whole development of that, it seems to me that one of the ironies is that this kind of free entrepreneurial spirit that has produced such a tech revolution in the U.S., is often now being put at the service of authoritarian, totalitarian regimes worldwide that are using these things, whether it is, uh, you know, using Israeli developed technology to track down some poor uh, Saudi or, um, you know, Bahraini princess somewhere so she can be returned home because she wanted to live in London and, and or facial recognition technology being used by the Chinese Communist Party and or you know, cell phone technology being used that you have to dial in all the time to show that you're a good party member. It, you know, it, it seems that the idealism of the tech community was misplaced in so many ways. And you look at a lot of the stuff that came out of Facebook and the whistleblower who happened to be a woman, didn't happen to, I think inevitably was a woman who talked about the misuse and directing towards children and so on. But more than that, there's a kind of an optimism that almost pretends as if the world no longer has some really bad actors, which make every single thing we invent a two-edged sword. And do you run into people really thinking about this? Like, okay, I'm inventing this so Walmart can keep track of license plates in their parking lot. I don't, I'm just making shit up here. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what it's actually going to be used for is, is the government of North Korea to, to prevent anybody from ever escaping. I mean, to be, a, to use a dramatic, ex whatever. Does any does anybody in the AI community, as you see it being developed, says, look, you know, what are we unleashing here? There, I mean, there is um, a contention of people. I think Elon Musk is actually a leader in this. That um, it's an. I think I'm going to forget the organization, but yeah. maybe the AI efficacy um, association or something of that sort. Yeah, they're they're not enough. It's not global enough there are countries that don't care. And so yeah. they're not ever going to get behind it. Yeah. Um, so we do have a little bit of a monster, you know, the universities, MIT's working on things. Um, yeah. It's an, it was an afterthought. It's not a forethought. And that's always yeah. the problem. Social media, you know, all the good things it could do is say, you know, great, that's forethought, but we didn't put forethought into what if it gets out of control? How do you, how do you, you know, get this monster of misinformation back in the box. Yes. And you, the best way you can do all of this is educating people on being much more savvy um, interpreters of news and, mm. and doing their homework and reading multiple sites and making sure they're not getting caught up in, you know, sound bites because that's, that sound bite might not be real. You've got to go find articles. Yes. 
Um, yeah. But yet there are there are people that do care, and there are organizations that, you know, and, and people like myself that try to write to bring up, you know, the issues at hand, mm. um, but not enough. I would just say when you when you look at the use of AI on a positive side, my producer Ernie uh, just sent me a little message in the chat section, which I think is an interesting question about artificial intelligence addressing climate crisis and whether you are running into people in terms of who you are coaching in entrepreneurial startups and or people in AI or your studies of AI generally, you know, is does some of this give you personally, you know, you, Teresa Spangler, a sense of optimism saying, yes, you know, it looks really bad, but all sorts of things are coming and we have all these smart people working on all this stuff and we've got AI and we can figure it out and, uh, you know, carbon reduction, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any kind of sense that um, there are things happening that are going to give us a little more of an edge on what seem like very intractable problems right now? Absolutely. I mean, the, the amount of innovation going on, I mean, we always need more, right? It was always a con, you know, complaint that we don't have enough innovation, but we have mm. a lot of innovation. We have a lot of people working on a lot of really, really big problems. and a lot Such of, as, such as, give us some examples. Well, so um, the, like the Institute of the Future, uh, if you know, um, I forget Jane's last name, I think it's Jane McGowan, who has a mm. book called Imaginable. She is, I think she's um, somebody you should interview, but she's got uh, a whole site focused on helping people to, you know, anticipate the future and think scenarios around negative effects of what could happen. Mm -hmm. If you're planning that way and you've got enough people, there's, um, you know, there's, um, you know, there's a coaching group uh, called Positive uh, Intelligence. The guys, the Shazad, the gentleman that has founded that has given away the program to thousands of coaches trying to increase the good things. Could people coming together and spreading, you know, this sort of goodness and how to change the dialogue from yes, but to yes, and, and, um, you know, so I think there are, there are organizations, there are people that care. There's a lot of innovation going on AI and, um, in climate change, my daughter, my daughter is an ESG, environmental sustainability and governance um, consultant. Um, you know, she AI platforms that measure carbon footprint and help companies. One of the things is if you're not aware that you're to the level of what you're what you're polluting, how can you fix it? And AI give you know the metrics and the analytics and all the detail around what you you know, can predict will be incredibly helpful, I think, in that. And then there's, you know, carbon reduction, things that are, who knew moss could suck out the carbon of, you yes. know, yeah, right? So we're learning these things. The question is, can we get, are we doing it fast enough? Can we Yeah, can we fast? ramp up quick enough to make a difference before, before, yeah. our, before yeah. our little cataclysm? Go back a minute and just mention the person who was talking about what we can imagine. And you said you should interview her. Um, we find we get a lot of good podcast interviews because someone like you either introduces us to somebody yeah. or knows them. Do you know her? I don't know her personally. I'm part of her cohort program that was uh, is a recent. I am certified in all of her futures thinking um, mm. programs. She, um, she the book. If you look at the book Imaginable, it just came out actually today. And oh, so wow. I'm in a new program that is. She selected, I don't know how many people, but there's hundreds of us. 
people to come in and just start to gain more insights on yeah. how she does her things. And so well, I well, our producer Ernie will look up Imaginable and yeah. get in touch with the publisher who will be very interested in booking her because publishers love to have authors interviewed when books are just being released. So we have a good int intro there. Yeah. If Ernie will do that, that sounds like a great interview. So thank you for yeah for that heads up. Let me just remind well, just, people. I just want to make a point yes. that to, to the points that you're asking about, that's how we maybe can conquer and bring the good mm -hmm. things to light because we need more of us out there in, in concert doing these things. Can't do it alone. We can yeah. make little steps alone, but we can do it better in groups. I want to get back to you with another question in a minute, but um, I'm going to do a, a little ID here thing here for folks who are listening to this podcast or watching it live on Facebook or seeing the recording of it on YouTube or Facebook and all the other interweb platforms we are on. Uh, my name is Frank Schaefer. This is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. We will have links to Teresa Spangler and anything she wants us to link to, including her book uh, and, and, and a, a place to get that on, on Amazon or any place she would like us to link to. Um, so you don't go, have to go searching all around for um, all that I am now that I know. And the other thing that I would mention is that um, if you like this podcast in the sense of enjoying it, please also like it in the online sense and spread the word uh, so that we can increase our audience for a wonderful interview like this with, with Teresa. Okay, that said, Teresa, talk a little bit about the history of your consulting work. You say you were working with your husband. Is this a company you started? Is he now working for you? Um, uh, do you employ him? Uh, how, what sort of an outfit is this? What do you do day to day? You were talking about teaching and I know you're an author. What is consulting about? Is it you? Is it a company? Is it lots of people? Is it so a I, network? Tell after, me about it. Yeah. So I left my, I left Red Hat in, um, uh, 2002 hmm. and started an innovation company at that time. So I started early on and, in that it's just, I've just done so many different things um, in and out of various organizations of all sizes, large and small. But I started it because innovation was being squeezed out after 9-11. We cut, we cut marketing, we cut innovation, we cut new product, we cut things back, understandably so. So everybody was cost control, hmm. um, regardless of the size of the company. And the importance of innovating in times where it's challenging was just really important to me. And I wanted to bring that back in. How do you do that while you're trying to keep the day-to-day -day numbers up? Um, so that's that was my focus. In 2000, and, uh, and that was called Creative Leadership Adventures. Uh, I worked with Coca-Cola and you know Home Depot and uh, the Tom Peters company. It's just so many different companies. And then I, um, my husband, who's also a brilliant uh, innovator and thinker and um, very good at what he does and, and new products as well. Mm. And so we decided to bring him, bring ourselves together. And he joined me in 2009. And so we've been in a, you know, a partnership. Um, he would say he works for me. I would say we're, we're equal partners, although yeah. I have majority ownership of the company, but we're married and we equally own it. So um, yeah. you know, it's, and we've, you know, we bring different things to the table and we've worked with some incredible companies. So we, we love the work that we do, 
But this entrepreneurial, because we work with fortune companies a lot of the time. And then we also work with companies that are mid and small, and we're trying to help them scale growth. And that's been a lot of our work over these all these years. Mm. But we, you know, our passion is entrepreneurship, because that's how we grew up, both of us. Uh, he worked is it at international I- or pr- primarily U.S. companies? So um, I would say the headquarters have been primarily U.S.-based companies, although we've done a lot of international work. Um, mm. We have worked with international companies. I actually worked with a, a Norwegian software company and helped them to sell it. Um, to put the uh, I mean, working with the board of directors to get it sold. So we've done a lot of different things around the world, pr- predominantly Europe and the the U.S., North America, Canada. We have clients in Canada. Um, so it, that, you know, but we're always kind of pulled back to in helping startups, and we'll do that a lot of times just to like, we give our time away. We'll just sit and listen. We have some ways that we do that and try to help them think through what it's going to take to either grow the business or get money or whatever you know they are trying to do, and any even more the viability of the idea. I mean, how many how many companies at any given time are you working with? So because we stay small, no more than about 12, we're probably working with seven, eight right now and mm-hmm. teaching. So, so um, when you say you stay small, so basically it's you and your husband, you have a staff in an office somewhere or are you working? Yeah, we used to have a staff. We don't have a staff anymore. Uh, you know, 2008, we went to 100% contractors. We have mm-hmm. a really large contract base. What's that mean? Just explain that for people who are not familiar with that. Yeah, partnerships with um, development companies that know how to do technology development. We used to have some of our own people that did that, but now we have partnerships that we've trust that we use. And how many many partnerships would that be? And how many people? More than 50. So we might have like three or four or five development firms that we use. We might have, you know, a number of um, individual contractors that we could bring in at any given time Mm -hmm. to supplement work that we might need to put somebody on site or it's a very intensive project. So we'll Mm -hmm. bring on two or three contractors to work. And start to finish, what would be the ideal timeframe in the sense of what do you bring to the table? Somebody gets in touch with you, says they need help and you bring all this with you and the contractors and you do your thing and how long are you involved with and in the best of worlds what do you take them from from what to what yeah so our average tenure has been 3.5 years 3.8 years somewhere in there Um, oh it's a long relationship it is but you know when we go in we're we're starting with it's kind of pulling the onion back right it's like let's identify what we need to do initially Hmm. and what the goal is And, and one case is how do we you know, what is the value of the data that we have? We're answering that one question. Well, to answer that one question, it takes, you know, three to four months of diving deeply into the kind of data. Where does it all sit? How is it organized? But that will lead us into, because this is an innovation project, as to what could we do technically with that data? And then mm-hmm. how do we protect the individuals that that data is coming from? How do you anonymize it? What do you do with it? And so we're inventing product that potentially could monetize that data. And eventually, because if we're doing our job well, we earn credibility and trust. We are the ones helping them design the products and then helping to commercialize and get those first customers. So it's a cycle. We can step into any part of that and do smaller engagements, six to nine months a year. Um, But for the most part, we're in for multiple years. Where where did, where have you been able to influence, if if at all? I'm not implying you should have. I'm just curious, with your interest in female entrepreneurship and leadership in this area, 
and your association with Edie and the WBC and these other folks, um, how, how much are you able to tilt things in a direction which perhaps even subtly makes a difference to the fortunes of future, yeah. not just women entrepreneurs coming in, but the kind of way a company behaves with their women employees or giving opportunities and these other things. Just talk about that for a minute. Uh, you know, so one, I have a lot of women that I bring to mm. the table that work with me. You know, um, in the so consult in, in these in, contractors. Yeah they'll, yeah, they'll come in. I'll bring them into the projects. Mm. Um, you know, I think the second way, and I'm work. I work with a lot of women, so it is. You know, it has been a lot of women in senior positions. You know, we're in a, um, especially in the. If you're familiar with Raleigh, Durham, sure, there's a lot of biotech and pharma yes. in that region. A lot of women have done very well in that industry. Have they done well in the HR kind of part, or are they doing well in no, the no, no. founders, part? startups, chief marketing officers, good, um, good. senior That's roles, product? Yeah. Any reason why the Raleigh Durham area has been good for that? You know, um, well, you know, it started because I think the three universities have a very strong science basis. Okay. But um, you know, GlaxoSmithKline was headquartered there for some time. Sure. We had we had larger biotech companies that were headquartered mm. there. They organized the biotech center, which was something that, you know, really was a foundation to bring and encourage and uh, recruit more biotech companies in. Yeah. So that was strong. We, you know, the entrepreneurship for tech was also strong because the universities are strong in tech in the region. So we have, you know, we had IBM there, we had, you know, every kind of major tech and, and telecom company in the area. So it was, it fostered a lot of good opportunities, mm. I would say for women more on the biotech tech, not so much. I was one of few women and there was, um, it has grown over time and it's gotten a lot stronger. Mm. Um, but still we we have a lot to catch up on. Well, um, also it's an area of the country people were kind of, it was easy to stay in once you've been in school there, maybe find a job yeah. kind of like where I live up near Boston. We have a lot of people who come to school in the Boston area and then stick around and work for the companies here. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. kind of circular thing. What, are you an optimist in terms of your own kind of work that more women are getting involved? I mean, here you are successful running this consultancy company. Speaking of which, what's been the reaction to your book so far? Who did you write it for? I mean, in hindsight, what kind of people are reading it, benefiting from it, getting back to you saying, we read this or we're using it? within our company or whatever. How, how has that all worked for you in terms of just author to author here? I'm curious how your book has worked for you. Well, well I probably worked more for the book than the book has worked. Yes, for me. I get that too, <laughs> believe me. Yeah, no, I, you know, I didn't write it for that. I wanted to help people, you know, but it was a way for me to kind of put down things that I've been through to help people feel like they're not alone. And maybe I, you know, maybe you won't make some of the same mistakes yes. or you won't have to yes. deal with some of the things I had to. That was my main motivation. But I mean, I, I'm, um, I, it's just kind of silly, but when I talk about a book, I forget to mention that I'm the author. So I might, <laughs> I just, you know, it's just the way I am. It's like, I get I, that. Right. Um, so I, but it, I would say, you know, I have a lot of friends that shared the book and they wrote it and got a lot of feedback. I had a, a very close male entrepreneur that is now worth a couple hundred million that wanted to read the book. And I was just laughing at why he would even want to read it. And he read yeah. it and then he sent me a picture of him reading it. And then he That's wrote great. me this incredible, you know, what a great, you know, story to be telling. And yeah, he's got four daughters. So he, he you know, I think yes. it's 
the the men with daughters start to realize the things that I've been through that are close to me and they want yeah. there. I just lost a very dear friend who has three beautiful daughters and he made sure before he left that I was very close to his daughters. Mm-hmm. They all got a copy of the book and they, you know, just, it, it warms my heart. If it helps you with one thing, I've done what I could. I yeah, was motivated to write it because there, you know, I worked with a number of women and sometimes the, you know, the way that they're trying to make things happen is a little harsh mm. and it becomes some, sometimes too harsh and it works against them. And so I really yeah. wanted to help women feel like you don't, you, there's other ways to do this. Let's get, when you talk about that. that, let me stop you there for a minute. When you say it becomes too harsh, give me an example of what you're talking about. Um, they get angry and yell and, you know, stomp their feet and mm. make food intimidate, you know, more lead by intimidation and, mm. Uh, not even realizing sometimes that they're doing it. And it's not just one woman, it's, you know, it's multiple. And men, men do that. I mean, it's of course. like everybody, right? We all have yeah. our, our time. But I found it a, to be something that didn't feel natural to them. They mm-hmm. wanted to change. So it's like, well, if you're feeling that way, there's probably others feeling that way. So how do we, how do we come back to who are we really as a woman? And let's get back to this natural, empathetic, you know, and make sure that we have empathy with people that we're connecting and engaging and, you know, thinking about people, which is all part of really stuff that's important to me. But I, it's, I find it being important to women sometimes when they feel out of sorts, they feel disconnected. They feel well, like- Well, and you look for male allies who get yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's helpful. That's, you know, and I I always wrap up these, I'm not quite wrapping it up yet, but I talk about this book I've written called fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. It sounds like a very conservative title for, you know, I'm married, I have children and grandchildren, but really I'm talking about fall in love with the concept of love rather than the concept of success as we define it by job title, have children in the sense we're all caregivers. Like today you're taking care of me because you're on my podcast and I'm taking care of you because I'm talking about your book. In other words, my relationship with you right now is like the same I have with my granddaughters when they do something and I stick it up on the refrigerator. I'm saying, hey, look, she wrote a book. Um, And stay put, don't always move to the better place in the sense of physically chase money all the time or position, but realize that community means something. And then of course, save the planet by not being always after the, 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 the most acquisitive thing. And then be happy is very ironic because as you know, I know this, you know this, cause you're a wise person. You know, the more we try to be happy, the less happy we are, the more we make those around us happy, the happier we get. And yeah. there's science to back all that up. So having written this book that seems to have struck a chord with a lot of women who have read it, um, I, you know, I feel very connected to people who are trying to help people have a more complete approach and also to women saying, be confident, keep your chin up. Don't imitate these idiot men who have blown their own lives by not having a whole life. Insist that you are a whole person, you know, have some, have some courage here and, and, and help men too, because there's a lot of guys out there, for instance, not taking parental leave because they think it'll, it'll make their career look less serious. And, and everybody has to be the first one out and essentially say, Hey, listen, I'm going to take advantage of this, or I'm going to demand childcare for my that this company helps provide that, whatever it may be. It just seems we're at a point now where without some male allies who get it, yes. who help with childcare personally, do the dishes. You know, my friend 
Aaron tells me the sexiest thing in the world is to watch a husband unloading the dishwasher. I mean, I know funny as this sounds, it's all real stuff. Um, and no, I, I, I think too often do we just don't talk about it. No, I wouldn't be able to do any of this about my husband. I mean, he's- Well, he's, there you are. Yeah, very, very much a support of yeah. my entire career. I mean, you, and, you know, and my, my daughter talk. says how on her CV now, you know, people ask her about her history and how she became a CEO and all the rest of it. And in the old days, she said it was all business. And now she's very upfront. She says, I learned more from being a mom and raising two children than I did from any of the stuff in the business world. In fact, when I apply those rules of conflict resolution and how to get along and caregiving and priorities, that's why I'm successful in business. Yeah, so yeah, she's even yeah, gone the right. next step and talks openly about her experiences as a mother and a spouse. So I don't know what you feel about that. Yeah. When I first started working, you know, on my own, have, you know, I started the company because I did do a, a lot of coaching in the beginning. Um, you know, men wanted this, you're right. Men wanted the same thing. So mm -hmm. it's not, it's not a necessarily always men, male, female thing. I mean, there's, yeah. We all need some kind of support. Or we all want that mentorship. We all want to have our voices heard, which is the biggest um, yes. component of this. So I think you know it's um, it's how do we how do we pay attention to the universe and of need, um, but also look at where the disparate areas are. If, you know how do we get women and raise them up? Because I do believe they'll help yeah. raise other people up. Oh, I think the I think in that sense, feminism in the best sense of the word is an evolutionary step. It actually has to do with our survival because unless we start being more caregiving, we're done. Yes, yeah, I mean I as agree. a as a species, and you know I think there's a lot of men like me who secretly and now I'm not so secretly because I've written about it and I've been doing childcare for my three youngest grandchildren for the last 13 years. And I don't mean my wife's been doing it and I help out. I mean I'm doing it with her and now more me than her. Um, I think there's a lot of men who are relieved to be able to have women open a door for them to actually be better human beings too. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with that. I mean, it's such a relief to, to have that approach. You know, it's why I've had a woman primary care physician for the last 25 years, because I don't have to be this big, tough, stupid idiot who comes in and says, I'm feeling fine. Yeah. You know, with this guy, I can be with a sympathetic human being who doesn't matter that it doesn't mind that I'm weak sometimes or right. scared sometimes. But you know, I mean, and that I, is the power yeah, of men, are really. men permission to be better men, you know? Yeah. 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 I totally agree. I mean, you know, when you're vulnerable, you're allowing me to be a little more vulnerable as well. Yeah. And then we, we open up and we get to know each other really, you know, it's yeah. not the surface stuff. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I mean, just, I don't, this is more information than you need, but like, I find it easier to talk about say an enlarged prostate and the fact I have to get up at night and pee three times sometimes with my woman physician than I do with a guy when I'm trying to keep, do this macho guy thing of who me, I don't have problems. <laughs> you, you, in other words, I get better medical care because I'm more actually myself as a male. I'm, yeah. I'm putting this all wrong and it's a weird example, but I'm trying to make a point that yeah. women leadership in business is a relief. It's a relief for a man to work with someone who cares about him as a whole person. Right, right. I am like, I totally agree. The more that, you know, we open up to people, this, this, I mean, it really is kind of the um, you know, emotional intelligence. Yes. You know, if we're a little more emotionally connected to people, we're, we have the opportunity to have healthy dialogue. Mm. We, can, we can disagree, but we can have a healthy dialogue around it.
Yeah, and women seem more aware too of connection on every level of just, hey, the whole planet's connected. Get with the program. Yeah. You're not this big, brave individual anymore. If you can't learn how to cooperate and get on with somebody or whatever field you're in, and I'm sure, tell just let's finish this up, but let's talk just for a minute about in the counseling you do to corporations and individuals who are doing startups, how, what are some of the points you give in terms of just behavior that is successful? How do you, how do you advise them to treat other people? So we lead by example, right? A lot of our work is doing, because we have to actually do the work. Like we're discovering, we're coming up with ideas, but, but you know, the work that I have to do is helping to influence others on how to influence their teams and to be respectful of the feedback that they're getting. And so it's a little more mentorship in the pure consulting work and coaching. Yeah, we can dive into it and give, you know, sort of give examples and work on it, deeply work on Hmm. how to open that up. In the consulting world, it's being savvy to the individuals in the room because you could have different personalities and everybody dealing with something very drastically different in the room that has nothing to do with work. And so if we're not careful, we disengage them all because they're so head into, well, my, my child is sick or, you know, my mom has COVID. I mean, today is especially, so it's being very sensitive to the room and the environment mm-hmm. and, and asking good questions. Like, well, how, how are we all feeling? Anything personally going on that we need to know about that we can help you, you know, kind of bring this to, if it, even if it's a time crunch, let's try to get to it and we'll help you as much as we can roll up the sleeves. But if we're influencing, for example, sometimes change is always, change is very difficult. It's just not dumping on change one at a time. It's building a, a soft transition into a new world, especially if you're a traditional company and you're trying to move to a you know more technically advanced, you're gonna have technology products and you don't have teams that understand the technology. We train them on the technology. We try to help educate them on what does this mean for you? What kind of skills are you going to need? How can we help you get those skills? What can we recommend to make sure that we're building that skill base around to be successful with this product and not, you know, not risk your job, right? The people are so worried they're going to lose their jobs. Our job is to, can we make you feel safe in this environment and show you what you can learn to help you learn how to be able to be supportive of this technology that's going out the door? Yeah, that's a wonderful place to end. So Teresa Spangler, my guest, this is Frank Schaefer on In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. Uh, my new book is, uh, if I can remember the title, <laughs> Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Teresa's book that we've been talking about is uh, All That I Know Now That I All That I Am Now That I Know. <laughs> it's All That I Am this Now That I Know. Book. I did screw up my own title first. Uh, so this is, you know, you can see I'm not picking on you. Um, and it, it's, it's exploring women entrepreneurship by someone who really knows what she's saying and has done it. So I would just say, if you have the least interest in women and entrepreneurship and business, you need to be very aware of Teresa and buy her book and read it. And then we will link to the book so people can do that with a click. We will also link to you, Teresa, for anybody who has questions. Right. And if you want to share this once we post it, 
that would be great because I think anybody who knows and loves you will like this interview. You come across as a wonderful person and it's been great to become a little more of your friend here today. So thank you so much for being with us and another shout out to the Women's Business Collaborative for being the venue where I met you as it were online. And so thanks, Teresa, this has been great. Really, really, really right. wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. My Appreciate pleasure. It. Thank right. you. Okay, uh -huh. bye-bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.